listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Newnham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Welcome back. You are joining myself, Rich, and Henry for another I Might Be Wrong. How are you doing, Rich? You well? I, I am good. I'm good. We are delightfully recording back-to-back for a couple episodes at your place so still still live and in person like we were for bell and sebastian which is nice yeah pull pull back the curtain there a little bit on this yeah it's it's nice because watching someone over the internet it's just this little wall in between and it's quite hard to read someone um when you're watching someone on a screen yeah i think it's apart from anything it's the little gaps that the delays on the internet cause and also we haven't talked over each other nearly as much while recording in person. It's weird that. I don't know whether that's just a delay in internet just slightly, which means that people just start tripping over each other. But I found that all the time, even though it feels like you've got a real time feed coming into your room, whether it's through this chat or whether it's through work and you're trying to talk to someone on a screen, it's so much easier just to stumble into someone's other right. chat. I don't know why that is. <laughs> yep. Anyway. Yeah. So, um, we're not here today to talk about lag times on internet uh, bandwidth. We're here to talk about music, and uh, it's your choice today. It you, is. You've, you've gone. You've gone large. I've gone big again. Large. Well, yeah. This is this, this is an artist that I've wanted to talk about since the early episodes, and I just wanted to make sure that we were going to do her justice because she was a really big musical thing for me in my in my mid teens. So we are talking about. Canadian-American singer, songwriter, record producer and actress, Alanis Morissette. Yeah, and and I think it's probably not just you that right. uh, was massively influenced at this time. Um, She's just huge. I guess the thing, before we go into her, um, the, the thing that seems to be, the, the, the biggest part of it, Alanis, for me, is that she c- crossed all boundaries. So at school we had like the different groups of people. Yeah, uh, but somehow Alanis just spanned everyone, like the, yeah. especially the girls as well. It's kind of the girls and, and the guys and the indie crowd. Everyone just got together over this album. It's definitely an album that's considered a a teenage girl angsty favorite, and that's totally fair. But it's not all it is. Yeah. So give us give us some Alanis background before we go into the album itself yeah we, we should probably mention we're talking about Jagged Little Pill if anyone hasn't just assumed that we're talking <laughs> about Jagged Little Pill which is Alanis's debut right correct no she'd recorded two pop dance albums in Canada before this whoa so have you heard them no I couldn't find them they weren't on Spotify I haven't done any real digging I don't think I want to because it sounds like it was very much a so Alanis actually has more of an acting start to her career than a singing start to her career. She was one of these kind of teenage, 90s teenage TV presenters for kids TV in, right. in Canada and got a record deal off the back of that with MCA in Canada. And after those two albums, they declined to extend her deal. And so her publisher there introduced her to manager Scott Welch, who convinced her to move to Toronto and write with other people. And as part of that, they funded her development and she met producer and songwriter Glenn Ballard, who was then her collaborator for her first couple of albums. So he has some songwriting credits on those albums. 
All right, so I'm instantly confused now because <laughs> you've already curveballed me. Um, so I always thought that if you listen to the way that she sings, yeah, physically the way that she sings, like the head's all over the place, um, and also the, the sound of her voice, it doesn't sound like a manufactured sound. And so right. I always thought that she was kind of stumbled out of the wilderness, out of the Yukon or somewhere, <laughs> um, and just just appeared. So it sounds like she was more produced than that. Um more produced is probably unfair because the approach to Jagged Little Pill was very separate to the approach from all of the stuff pre that. She was definitely produced for those early pre-proper Alanis albums. But when they recorded Jagged Little Pill, she was not signed to a record label. They had pretty much no money to actually do the recordings. They were doing all of the recordings in Ballard's studio because he just believed in her talent and wanted to encourage her. So when I say he's got co-songwriting credits, a lot of the time he's sort of just enabling her musically rather than leading any of the songwriting and her sort of riding on his coattails. It's very much the opposite way around. So they were in the middle of writing Jagged Little Pill when she was signed to Maverick Records because they'd heard some of the early stuff that they'd recorded and every other label they'd approached (laughs) had declined to have any interest in her. But this one record label was really interested and they took along a demo of one of the songs, I can't remember which, and they really liked it and signed her basically there and then. But apparently she'd been in the middle of a recording session when they were like, we've got to go, we've got a meeting with Maverick, we've got to go. And she was just like in slobbing around clothes like comfortable clothes that you'd wear for recording so she's wearing like these tatty uh jogging bonds and she's like i need to change they're like you don't have time and she was like ah they're gonna hate me but no that so that you loved her nice and signed her on the strength of the music rather than any image or anything like that yeah and apparently most of jagged little pill is recorded in one or two takes really okay yeah and there are songs on the album that were written in like an hour wow because we've, we've mentioned um, one of the songs already on our podcast through the Chili Peppers. <laughs> yeah. With, with, with Flea. I was going to talk about that um, one. And um, so how does how does that, I mean, for a debut album, mm-hmm. for someone who's come out of nowhere, to get the Chili Peppers playing on your first album, that's that's some influence. I mean, Ballad must be a bit of a bit of a big cheese. Yeah, so I think that was, Ballad brought in some musical talent and Flea came in for literally one session. So there was already bass and guitar laid down for You All To Know, which yep. is the track that we were talking about. That was something where Flea apparently came in and Dave Navarro is the guitars. Who's Chili Peppers as well. Who was Chili Peppers at that particular point in time. Yeah. And so they'd come in and they literally recorded it in a few hours. And it was just Flea basically listening to this track and then going in and recording what he felt was a good baseline. It was like one one take, pretty much. <laughs> That's cool. Um, but he, yeah, it's it's an interesting one because you mentioned this on the Chili's episode that it's sort of buried. If you actually go and listen to the track, you can you can definitely pick it up as that sounds like Flea. Yeah, it's interesting because I know this album quite well, Jagged mm-hmm. Little Pill, and that song is well known mm-hmm. and 
I'd never noticed it. And until we talked about the chili pepper side of things, it, it was new to me. But then obviously when you listen to it, you're like, oh yeah, that's clearly a flea bass line. It's obviously flea. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I had literally no idea until you until you pulled that particular fact out during during the episode. But yeah, you also know is was the first single and got played heavily on a an LA radio station called K Rock FM, uh, which was a really big, they were sort of a big deal in LA rock music at that point in time. And that's really what spun the album up into being a success because the initial expectations were if you if you sell a hundred thousand copies, a couple hundred thousand copies, you'll have done really well. And obviously it sold tens of millions worldwide in the end. Yeah. And this song is also lyrically it's pretty punchy. I mean, it, it it shows this kind of, this strong feminine side, which um, propelled her into stardom, I guess, because it probably resonated quite well with, with a lot of people. Well, again, this was another one that was recorded really quickly. And apparently after they'd recorded it, she said, oh, well, obviously we'll have to change the lyrics on that because obviously there's the bit about, would she go down on you in a theatre? And she being a polite Canadian type, was worried about how that would be perceived. And Ballard at that point basically was like, well, is that what you felt? And she was like, yeah. It's like, well, then we should keep it. Yeah. And that was it. But she talks about some of that in terms of the way they were recording. She said she wished she'd had a few extra guardians around. There are a lot of people with the title guardian around me that were often at times the very people who were not a guardian. I can't fault anyone because so many people were exploitative and were using me. They didn't even know they were doing it. So I think she feels like she was young and naive. People around her recognized their talent and took advantage of that fact. But they were only doing it because they were like, oh, she's really talented. She could go a long way. But they were obviously doing it for their own gain as well as for hers. Interesting. Which is a really interesting take. That was from a recent interview with the independent that she did talking about her new album which has just come out in in july so yeah she's still going but did you know in 1996 taylor hawkins was the drummer for her tour which was obviously a big deal because it just come out at that point foo fighters foo fighters yeah and that was before he was in the foo fighters so what happened was he was touring for alanis morissette and alanis morissette at that point had become a big deal and Dave Grohl rang him up because they'd had to kick out their drummer because it was, there was a load of problems at that point in time. And Dave Grohl called him up and was like, hey, do you know any drummers that you could recommend? I'm looking for a drummer. And Taylor was like, I want to join you. Oh, I amazing. want to be part of well, the well, Foo who Fighters. Would, who would not want to do that? So No, no, no. At that point, there was still a really tiny band. They weren't well known at all. Yeah, but Grohl, though, being ex-Nirvana, would have been, I mean, he was a superstar. Yeah, but the Foo Fighters weren't a big band. Alanis Morissette was a much bigger deal at that point than the Foo Fighters were. And so that's why Dave Grohl had rung him up to see who he'd recommend. He didn't expect him to want to leave that situation. Got it. But Hawkins said that basically he wanted to be part of a band, not part of someone's backing band as an individual solo artist. Good move. Which is fair. Yeah. And he's done all right out of it. Yeah, I think one of the things for me, so I discovered Alanis Morissette I must have been 15-ish at the time when when that album came out. And I got into it pretty rapidly. There was lots of radio play and I just really liked it. But I think part of it was that I'd previously liked Sheryl Crow 
and I liked her stuff. But I sort of think of Cheryl Crow as being like the white picket fences American dream version, whereas Alanis is more of the reality of life version. Yeah, that's pretty fair. I, I'm a big Cheryl Crow fan mm-hmm. as well. I think I had a big crush on her as well. Um, but <laughs> didn't. yeah, her, her her music's brilliant. I mean, it's it's more country um, mm-hmm. than this. But those two artists were definitely at that time the kind of the two female singer songwriters who you, they were on everyone's playlists. You'd yeah. always see them, so definitely put them in the same bracket. But you're right, Alanis. As, as soon as you look at the lyrics, Alanis is a lot more edgy it's about the relationships and it's it's more kind of cutting she's very real in terms of her lyrics and I think that's one thing that I've always that's always appealed to me and she is an extroverted introvert and I align with that that's what I am as a human being and so she talks about it being a strange again another quote from her it's a strange combination I feel like I was born with my foot on the gas pedal and my other foot on the brake I'm the girl who wants to jump off the cliff but I run down and make sure the water's deep enough I love racing motorcycles but I did every single safety training you could possibly take so it's high novelty high sensation seeking that wild part is very much alive like I need newness or like I feel like I'm dying combined with the temperament of a shaky terrified poodle I'm a poodle on a motorcycle (laughs) I love that quote (laughs) that's cool that is cool but it's true. And I definitely agree with that, right? I, I have done skydiving and things like that, which I absolutely love. But I'm also, you know me, I'm quite a cautious individual when I feel like I need to be. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. We should talk songs. Let's talk songs. So we've we've kind of mentioned um, you ought to know. I want to start with the start of the album. Yeah. I'm afraid. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> it, this is, again, this is a if you ignore her previous pop career and consider this a new career in alt-rock, this is a pretty solid side one, track one, debut album song to get going. So it has that kind of classic American alt-rock fuzzy guitars and harmonica. Yeah. And this is, I've put, this is my preferred version of Alanis, the snarling, sarcastic, fed up with your bullshit, one that rolls her eyes at everything. And she's at her lyrical best here. So you've got things like, why are you so petrified of silence? Here, can you handle this? Such is the best part of the whole song. One of the best parts of the album. And then she lists off a list of possible things you might have thought about and finishes that off with, or did you long for the next distraction? It's so cutting. It's a it's a good album opener, and it's not over the top. It's just it tells you where you're headed for the mm-hmm. rest of the album. It's it is good, yeah. And that followed by you ought to know is is a really strong open to the album. It's one of the interesting things about this album that I didn't realize until I went back and listened to it is it's really long. <laughs> it's like surprisingly it's just, long album. Yeah, it's nearly an hour long, isn't it? And there's a lot there's a lot of songs. So thirteen songs on the album, and there are probably some songs that didn't need to be on here yeah it, it you, could have done with a little bit of a cull well the next song perfect is it's all right but it's okay you know you've got hand in my pocket after that which is a stone cold belter so i love that track so this is another brilliant moment it's it's that thing of having some pretty heavy hitting songs to open and then this is this more upbeat it's got a bouncy thing going on it's it's more of that kind of alt-rock guitars and harmonica. And the bass line is great. Yeah. It's got harmonicas all the way through as well. And it is and it is a little bit uplifting. It's quite a lot uplifting. and It is. And it's my favourite track on the album because it's got this feel of it of, yeah, stuff's going to be all right. Things are pretty good, actually. Like, it's not all bullshit. It's, it's pretty cool. 
Apparently, another one took her an hour to write this. Ballard said, I saw her write that in front of me in like an hour. I had a 12-string Epiphone electric guitar and we just wrote it on the spot. Fantastic. Right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I, did it get released as a single? I think it did. There I'm was pretty six sure it was, singles from this album, yeah, so probably. I'm pretty sure this was in the charts and I think it did quite well. Mm-hmm. Mary Jane's great as well. So a little bit later in the album. The organ on that track and the others that have organ on are Ben Mont Tench of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Okay. So another pretty big musician to be involved in this. And apparently he recorded the work for free because Morissette didn't have the money to pay him and it was all done in one session. Amazing. Um, but that's a really sad song. It's Apparently it's about a friend of hers that she watched who would go all out to try and help other people out and then would always be emotionally drained and sort of a bit broken themselves. Wow. Yeah, it's a bit of a ballad, isn't it? Yeah. You've skipped over Head Over Feet, which I just love musically. Um, It's lyrically, it's probably not as good, but when I was listening to this album and I would put it on repeat, I would love Head Over Feet just because it's sonically lovely. Yeah, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna argue with you on that one. I do like Head Over Feet. It's just not one of my. It's not one of the highlight tracks for me. Yeah, fair really. enough. I guess we've got to talk about track ten. Yeah, but we're not going to go into any of that <laughs> bullshit about. Are the things ironic? I I honestly think no, that the whole it. the whole thing could be solved by just replacing "Isn't It Ironic" with "Isn't It Annoying" because it scans and it's actually right. Yeah. So. I'm not going to t- talk too much about the lyrics on this song because everyone's, every single album yeah. review and whatever, fuck it. But it's a very good song. <laughs> and um, there's a reason why this got played to death and still does. Yeah. And it starts really quietly, but this belting chorus, I mean, if you've seen the video to it where she's in a car with her hat on and she's just waving her head all over the place. How many people have done that? You know, you're driving down the road and you're yelling this and singing it at the top of your voice. It's a yep. The the video really matches how you do this in real life. It's the angsty female teen version of Wayne's World Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> yes, yes, it totally is. Yeah, it totally is because I remember. Yeah, yeah, we 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 did Bohemian Rhapsody so many times with um yeah. with me and my buddies. So yeah, um, absolutely. Um, but you're right. It is the angsty teenage version. Yeah, I love that. I've got one more to touch on from this, which is called Your House. And it's the a cappella thing that she sings right at the end of the album. It's a hidden track that is tacked onto the back end of a reversion of You Ought to Know. Okay. So I always thought it was about somebody sort of semi-stalking a would-be lover, someone that they really fancied that they couldn't quite pluck up the courage to tell them. What she says about it is that she was pseudo dating a man who often left town and she would stay at his place while he was gone and she said I was interested in this gentleman so I didn't want to look anywhere but I did want to look it felt like I was invading but at the same time I'd been welcomed oh this is interesting I don't think because I had the tape version of this and I've just found the song and it definitely wasn't on my tape really version. so I'm, I've been uh, short sold yeah um, this is a new song to me so what's it called? Your House. It's called Your House. It's this beautiful, completely a cappella thing. I mean, it totally showcases how incredible her voice is because there are not many voices that can hold that kind of a song. Uh, but she talks about it in terms of she would perform that song. Her band members would just, everyone would leave the stage 
and yeah. she said after a while she would have them stay there was something powerful about having them played so intently and intensely throughout the show and then being able to stop and put down their instruments those were often my favorite moments because they were so painstakingly vulnerable and intimate i didn't look at anyone in the audience for 15 years because those lyrics were too intense for me to look at anyone wow yeah okay that's new Crazy. to me yeah I, I for me the album closes with wake up which is the she's a good tune well, i think it for me it was the last one on the album but yeah clearly not interesting I think it might have just been on the CD version because that was at the point when they were doing the CD hidden track thing. Got it. Because I had the I had the CD version. I I have very distinct memories whenever I listen to Alanis Morissette of being in probably year eleven and writing English essays with that plugged into my headphones and on the CD player of of the the family computer. Yeah, yeah, I I've I've definitely done a lot of homework to to this on tape. <laughs> right. Um but yeah, it's one that got a huge amount of airplay with me. And it, I guess it is one of those it's a softer album so you you can have it on the background unlike like I bought a Metallica tape and and <laughs> doing homework to Metallica is is not that great. Yeah, I'm not doing homework to Skunk and Nancy. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, I think this is definitely a big, big chunk of people's people's kind of school life. Yeah, and it's a weird one because I stuck it on to have like a few listens through before we did the podcast and I really like it, but I don't know that I've listened to it for probably a decade. Yeah, and actually now that you brought it up, I'm clicking through songs and there's some, it's great, it's fantastic. I'm going to try and work this back into my listening for a while just to enjoy it. So proper nostalgia album. Yeah. So off the back of this, which was absolutely massive, mm-hmm. only a couple of years later, she released another album. Did you Did you listen to it? I didn't really. I didn't buy it because the singles that they released off it, so there was Thank You and a couple of others, and none of it really grabbed me. So Thank You was a bit too vanilla Bland. poppy yeah the the album's just so that we're clear is it's supposed former infatuation junkie which is a mouthful in itself just a terrible um, name. It's, <laughs> it's rubbish i want it to be a good name and it's not it's not and to be honest i i can't remember many of the songs on there even though i've i've listened to it i didn't buy it right but i think off the back of that one single i don't remember thinking oh i need to get this album right and thank you was definitely the major single off that album i don't remember anything else that i would particularly have thought oh yeah i remember hearing that a bunch and so i mean that was 98 so just going into sick form getting into other bands really there was just so much music that i was discovering at that time listening to xfm london-based station at the time was just playing all sorts of brilliant wonderful unknown new music before they got bought by capital and turned into ah capital for indie xfm in its heyday was absolutely it was it was brilliant whoever was running xfm and i don't know much about it but just constantly interesting new music i mean it was a little bit like i guess when john peel was at his peak Mm -hmm. and just showing you he's he's like john peel would say yeah here's some reggae and you're like whoa okay this is totally unexpected but brilliant and XFM was doing that, but with indie-specific. Their their whole thing was that they... I'm sure I read something from one of their execs or someone high up from XFM who basically said, we wanted to be a station that 
John Peel would have been proud to DJ on. Like they wanted to take that thing of, and I remember discovering Muse through XFM. Yeah. <laughs> Literally in the bath listening to yeah. XFM. And it wasn't one of the singles. They didn't lead with something that the record label had pushed them to play. Literally one of the DJs had gone, I got sent this album. It's really great. Really enjoying it. This is one of my favourite tracks and played uh, Hate This and I'll Love You. Yeah, okay. Which is which not is, a single. Yeah, interesting. So I guess since then, things have gone quiet up until quite recently. Well, she's done she's done releases every few years. I'm assuming that she probably has a chunk of cult fans who will buy every album, will listen to everything that she does, really connect with her work. I'm not one of those people. I went and had a listen to her most recent album and it's very accomplished. It's a really beautiful album. I'm not sure I'd listen to it loads. It's a bit too middle of the road American rock. Yeah. And I think you've you've nailed it. It's the angst and the the fuck you side of the first album that just isn't doesn't seem to be there in, in the rest right. of the albums. She's not angry. <laughs> She's not an angry lady. She's got yeah. you know, a good marriage. She's got some kids. She has a good life and I think that shows up in the music but it's not what i'm really looking for from an album at the moment yeah and she's managed to nail that first album because the the angst also kind of drives the songwriting and so you get this kind of sonically it kind of comes at you and each song is it's, it's quite different whereas you look at the more recent stuff and it is it's just middle of the road um mm-hmm. Which, Which is, is fine. fine. I'm sure she's probably got a lot of fans who enjoy that, but it's it's not for me personally. But I do have a lot to thank her for because not only was it that album being one that I listened to an awful lot, it was also that led me into a whole load of strong female vocalists yep. and singer-songwriters. So PJ Harvey released Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea two years later, a year and a half later, and that became a big album as part of my listening. And and so really she opened up that more female voiced sound to me. Yeah. She and Cheryl Crows, we've mentioned. I think she did a lot of good just for, you know, the female cause in a way, because there was very much a, I think before that, I know there are some, I mean, you look at like Debbie Harry or someone who is a complete role model for a lot of people, but and Eurythmics and like Annie Lennox and, and the, what, what she was doing. But Alanis was definitely for me the first person as a as a woman who would stand up and, and almost like fight back and go, actually, no, this is, I'm in charge and I'll have a crack at you if you if you try and go off the rails. And not many other, I don't, I can't remember other artists who would, who stood up like that. I mean, there, there must be quite a few that I've not okay. thought of. So, so I agree with you to an extent. I think the thing is for me is I think about those voices and you start to get into like the Janis Joplins of the world. I don't know that there's anyone that I can think of that's in the mainstream in the 90s with that kind of sound. Yep. You've got a lot of female artists like Madonna and a lot of pop artists who are doing that pretty poppy female voice stuff. Yep. I can't think of many who are really prominent mainstream female voices that are something a bit different and not just going along with the masses. And I think that's the thing where Elias Morris... And you had people in smaller India situations. So Skunk and Nancy, we already sort of mentioned them. (laughs) Skin is obviously a huge feminist voice in that time, but Skunk and Nancy weren't that big. Yeah. 
it was super refreshing um, to hear uh, as a teenager who could be kind of quite influenced by music. So um, yeah, good on her. She's she's nailed it with that album totally. Yeah, did did she lead you into other artists, or was it again more just opening up a general side of things? I uh, just just open the ears. Cherokee was almost like a stable mate, but not their sounds were slightly different. But in terms of female singer songwriters, the two of them were pretty kind of yep. of their time. But yeah, she she didn't really. I mean, she just she was just good at what she did. The one thing that puts her kind of to one side in my CD collection, and I keep calling it a CD collection because that's kind of <laughs> shows my age. It's that I kind of I'm a bit of a, a sucker for that softer voice. A bit like Cheryl Crow. So Alice's voice isn't that. It's quite harsh and it's quite mm-hmm. kind of, uh, it's quite piercing. And for some reason, I'm, I think it's great and I I'm, I'm can't quite work out why. So in that sense, I wouldn't seek out that kind of shrill voice, I guess. And, but yeah, it's, I think shrill is the wrong word. It's, it is piercing, but it's, it's got a depth and a strength to it rather than necessarily being one dimensional. Yeah, true. What about for you? Did she lead you anywhere? Well, like I say, PJ Harvey and some of those big female rock voices. And and again, a lot of the music that I listened to in my younger years and in my teens were generally male-voiced yeah. artists. And so just discovering... Just, I think, the idea that female artists could be more than just pop queens... Totally, totally. ...was a big, big revelation, which sounds blindingly obvious but i don't think it was in the 90s that was my earlier point exactly that is she's she's really kind of stood up on a platform and said you know we can we can be angsty too um <laughs> so yeah have you seen her live probably not no i i always assumed that if i saw her live it would be at a festival or something and i don't think i go to any festivals where she would be a likely headliner unless i went out to the states and went to like coachella or something she happened to be headlining there yeah i would given the opportunity, but I just don't think I ever will. You? No, I haven't seen her. I, I, yeah, I would have thought a smaller venue when she plays that album in full with like a really good session band, that would be wicked. I'd love to see right. that. Um, and, and actually, if, you're, if, you, if you've seen her recent work, the album came out and she's, during lockdown, she released, is it Ablaze, the, the single that's come off her most recent album? Yep. And she's singing there just into a mic holding her kid and her voice is fantastic like it's properly properly good and she's done this um i think she was doing it with a backing band and it was and they must have pre-recorded because they've they've got all different musicians and they clearly mm-hmm. aren't playing together they're playing to a track and they've mixed it later yeah but her voice on that which is a kind of live voice fell into it is absolutely stonking and she's not in a recording studio and she's got a kid dangling off her arm so she's definitely still got that that talent there well that's one thing i will say for her latest album is that her voice sounds incredible and i think a lot of artists even if you've got a natural flair early on the more you sing the more you get your footprint of your voice if that makes sense like it really kind of comes to the fore and i think there's an element almost of Oh, I can't remember her name, but the the lead singer of the Cranberries now to how she sings these days. Cool. Well, that's quite a good journey. I'm I'm glad that you brought the album out because it's one that I reckon it, it's a store in so many people's record collections. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's and it just cuts across genres 
I've got friends who are massive metal fans who would like to listen to that. And yeah, I think this is probably one of the most popular albums we've covered, I would have thought. Yeah, I think so. It's been fun. It's been good. Yeah. Thanks, Rich. Cheers. Thank you for listening to another episode of I Might Be Wrong. 